This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion, one verse at a time. Welcome to the One Verse Podcast. I am Jeremy Myers. We're looking at Genesis 2, verses 8 through 15 today, seeing that the Garden of Eden is the temple of God. Do you ever wonder if you'll be bored in heaven? Sometimes we get this idea that we're going to get in heaven and sit on clouds, play harps. People look at that and say, I think I'll take a pass. Doesn't sound like too much fun, too enjoyable. Sounds like it's going to get real boring after about 30 minutes or so. Well, uh, we learned today from Genesis chapter 2 that that is not going to happen. (laughs) We're going to see, now you might initially not like the alternative, we're going to see that work existed before humanity fell into sin, and so it will likely also exist when we reach glorification in our eternal state. Uh, But don't worry, you might say, work, I don't want to work, I'm tired of work. Well, don't worry. Uh, Whatever work you do in eternity will be work you enjoy and love. It will be incredibly fulfilling, satisfying, enjoyable, just exactly what you were made to do. Some people are blessed in this life with having a job that they just love doing. And uh, that's the way it will be for eternity as well. We're going to sort of see that in Genesis 2 today. Also in Genesis 2, 8 through 15, we are going to see why Adam was given work to do in the Garden of Eden and why you and I still carry on this work today. No matter what your job is, there is a particular job that Adam was given in the Garden, which you and I carry on today. And uh, we're also going to look at the strange description of the rivers that surrounded Eden. You know, all these verses about rivers. Why is all that there? Uh, It's not so that we can try to figure out where Eden used to be located. We're going to see all that a whole lot more as we look at Genesis 2, 8 through 15 today. So stick with me. Before we do that, though, I want to invite you, if you enjoy these podcasts, would you please go and pre-order a copy of my newest book? It's called The Atonement of God. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, it's available in paperback or ebook version if you have a Kindle. If you don't have a Kindle, you've got an iPad or something, you can still buy the Kindle version and just get the free Kindle uh, reader for, for your smartphone, for your iPad or whatever, and read it that way. And uh, with, with Easter coming up here in about two weeks or so, I wanted to get this book out in time for that. It's, it's called The Atonement of God, and it looks at how everything in our life and theology centers around the, the death and resurrection of Jesus and, and changes it, revolutionizes it, really. One of the reasons I think that you will be interested in it, though, is because a lot of the things I'm going to be sharing from Genesis chapter 2, 3, and 4 is found in this book. Uh, I've been studying these passages for several years now, and uh, one of the reasons I started this podcast is so that I could teach in audible form some of the things I was learning and some of the things that found their way into that book. Now, these podcasts will be explaining these things a lot more detail, but if you want a sort of a preview of what we're going to be seeing about sin, about the murder of um, of Abel by Cain, uh, about the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and, and just about everything going on in these chapters, well, you'll want to get that book and get a, get a sort of a preview of uh, what we're going to be seeing in future episodes of the One Verse podcast. So that's The Atonement of God uh, by Jeremy Myers. Just search for that on Amazon. The Atonement of God by Jeremy Myers. 
And it's available March 21st, but between now and then you can pre-order a copy of it uh, for yourself as well, okay? So, uh, that's, that's The Atonement of God by Jeremy Myers. Now, with that, let, let, let's take a look at Genesis 2, 8 through 15. I've mentioned so far, as we've begun to look at this second creation account in Genesis chapter 2, that uh, these, these next three chapters, Genesis 2, 3, and 4, contain some shocking and foundational truths for pretty much everything related to life. I mean, society, culture, religion politics, history, war, violence, just a whole host of other topics. And because of that, these three chapters, Genesis 2, 3, and 4, form the foundation for understanding the rest of Scripture as well. You really will not be able to understand the rest of Scripture without having a grasp, a good understanding of these three chapters at the beginning of Genesis. And so far, as we've studied chapter 2, We've really only begun to lay the foundation. If you've listened to the last couple episodes, I've been talking, I've been really talking up this idea about how these, these chapters are so important, and you maybe didn't hear a whole lot that was too revolutionary. Uh, that's because all we're really doing is laying the foundation for these truths that follow, for these ideas that are going to come later in these chapters. In the verses we're looking at today, verses 8 through 15, they continue to lay the foundation. So while we are going to see some important truths here, uh, what we're going to see is is really not more, it's, it's not these revolutionary ideas I keep telling you about. Those will be coming starting in verses 16 and following that we'll begin to look at next time. And then they just pick up the pace and they'll, they'll, they'll come in rapid succession after that. But we have to lay the foundation first. You've got to have this good foundation in place before you can start to see these revolutionary and shocking ideas about everything related to life and how to understand Scripture. So, so let me just summarize the foundation that we've seen so far. Um, what we've seen in Genesis 2, 4 through 6, is that God is this relational God who doesn't have anyone to relate to. We've also seen that um, God, the, 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 the earth was without plants because there was no one to till the ground. God was watering it. He was bringing forth water upon the earth, but there was no plants because there was no man to till the ground. And so based on those two sort of um, things in in verses 4 through 6, obviously you can know what's going to happen next, and that is what happens in 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 chapter 2, verse 7, God creates man. And so now God has someone to relate to, and there is a man to till the ground, and so plants can be grown. Now, if you remember what we saw, though, in Genesis 2, 7, The way Moses describes the creation of man from the dust of the ground, it would have been clearly recognized by the audience of that time as a reference to the way Mesopotamian religions from that time created and installed statues in their temples. Uh, You can go listen to last week's podcast on on Genesis 2-7 to see that. Uh, But the way these statues were thought to represent God, um, it was thought that the God came and indwelled, uh, indwelled the statue, uh, sort of filled it with the the nature and presence, very essence of the God, so that in a way the statues, even though they didn't move around or talk or breathe or eat or anything like that, these statues were considered to be living beings, the living representations, even the the dwelling place or the house of the God himself. And that's why they built these elaborate 
temples around the statues for the statues because this was considered to be the house of God. So the way to read Genesis 2-7, it's not just about God forming man. What God is doing in Genesis 2-7 is building or constructing a statue of himself, for himself. And the beautiful thing about this statue that God makes, which is you and I, this living being, is it actually is a living being. It does walk around. It does move. It does breathe and talk and eat and hear and all these sorts of things. That's what we saw in Genesis 2-7. You and I are the statues of God, the living, breathing representatives of God who bear the image and nature of God into the earth. And that has great ramifications for how we view each other and even how we treat each other. People back then believed that whatever you did to one of those statues, you did to God. So we should have that same idea today. Whatever you do to someone else, just assume that that is how you are treating God as well. Jesus talks about that. You give a cup of cold water in my name, You've done it to me. Okay, very similar idea. Anyway, in light of these developments in Genesis chapter 2, the way the story is unfolding, the original audience of Genesis 2 would have known exactly what was coming next. They would have seen this is a temple text. We have a God without a temple, without worshipers, without a statue, right? without a priesthood, all these sorts of things, and he needs all this stuff in order to be properly worshipped. And so what we've seen so far in Genesis 2 is the description of God building his temple and adding a statue of himself to the temple. And by the way, if you remember back when we looked at the Sabbath rest of God, the rest of the, on God of the seventh day in Genesis 2, 1 through 3, do you remember what we saw there? We, when we looked at those verses, we saw that the rest of God was not him ceasing all activity, but was actually him coming to rest within the temple he had built for himself so that the temple work could actually begin. Uh, in ancient civilizations, you remember, uh, the t- after the temple was completed, there would be this huge sort of citywide party, a celebration to install the god into the temple. They would bring the god to rest in the temple. And that didn't mean that he wasn't going to do any work. What it actually meant is the the temple work was now going to begin in earnest. When the God came to rest in the temple, they put the opened for business sign out on the front door. Not not literally, but you know, you know what I mean. Grand opening. That's that's what Genesis 2, 1 through 3 is all about. The grand opening of the temple. The temple is now open for business. And that's exactly what we're seeing here in the second creation account of Genesis chapter 2. It's really this focus on the temple being open for business. God, in in Genesis chapter 2, God is opening the temple, his temple for business. And and Moses has been showing this by laying out and describing the various elements that are required for all temples. So far, we've seen God. uh, His name is Yahweh. That was introduced to us in Genesis 2, verse 4. And we've seen God's land, which is the whole earth. Of course, it was barren and dry. It didn't have any plants because there wasn't any man. And so that's what God does in chapter 2-7. He builds the statue. So we have God, we have God's land, and we have the statue of God, which is the human being. So what's missing? Well, if you're familiar with temples, you know what's missing. You need the temple itself, of course, and you need a priesthood to carry out the, the, the things that go on in the temple, the regulations, rules, the business of the temple. And, of course, you need some sort of um, teachings or covenant or law, rules, regulations, you know, the things that the temple 
helps people uh, carry out. Every, every religion, every temple has its own rules, household rules, religious rules, regulations, all sorts of things. So, so we need those things as well. So if Genesis 2 then, just sort of picture this, you can create a little checklist almost. If Genesis 2 is a temple text describing the temple that God has built for himself, then we've got God, we've got his statue, we've got the land that God rules over. Well, obviously what's missing? We need the temple itself, we need the priesthood, and we need the teachings of the law. The teachings, by the way, the Hebrew word for that is Torah. So we need the, the law, the, the teachings of the temple. And guess what? All three of those things are provided by God in Genesis 2, verses 8 through 17. Uh, today we're looking at verses 8 through 15. So this is where God provides the temple and the priesthood. That's verses 8 through 15. Next week, when we look at verses 16 and 17, we're going to see the teachings of the law. Uh, teachings are the law of the temple. Uh, how God provides the things that the, are to be done and not done in his temple. All right, so that's where we're going. First then, uh, in Genesis 2, verses 8 through 14, this is the description of the temple itself. In the land, obviously, a temple is a portion of the land. So in the land, say the te- in the land of Israel, for example, they built a temple in Jerusalem. So, similar to what we have here, in the whole world is the land of God, uh, and in this land, God builds a temple for himself. Uh, in the land, this barren landscape, God plants a garden. That's what we see here in verse 8. Uh, the, the garden is the temple of God in the land of God. And the reason we know that the Garden of Eden is the temple of God is because of this long description in verses 10 through 14. Lots of people think that this long description of the rivers and the gemstones and all of this stuff uh, is is there so that we can sort of look at a map of of the globe and try to find these rivers. And, you know, we do recognize a couple of the names of the rivers. Some of them we don't. And so there's always these studies, always this temptation, all of this this attempt by scholars and, and, and pastors and archaeologists to try and figure out where these rivers are and hopefully, in that way, figure out where the Garden of Eden was. And I don't know, I suppose if anyone is ever able to figure it out, they maybe would go look for the, the tree of life or the tree of knowledge of good and evil or something. Of course, even if they did exist, uh, they wouldn't be where they are now because of the whole flood, which we see in Genesis chapter 6. But the point is, is I think that that approach is, is sort of the wrong approach to this. Moses is not giving us this description of the gemstones and the, and the rivers and all that. Primarily, at least not primarily, I mean, maybe partly back then before the flood, they knew where these were, but I, again, I don't think that's the point. The point is not so that you can find the Garden of Eden on a map. Uh, that sort of approach misses the point of the text and why Moses is describing these four rivers. The reason there's so much description of these rivers is to show that the Garden of Eden is the temple of God on earth. You you go and read the descriptions of of temple texts from other religions in the days of Moses, and you'll notice two things. First of all, these temple descriptions always indicate that the temple is a mere image of the dwelling place of the gods in the heavens. Uh, Temples were built in an attempt to bring heaven down to earth. 
to reveal to humans on earth the type of place that the gods lived up in the heavens. And uh, more importantly, many of these temple texts from the other religions often describe the land of the gods, where the gods lived, as a land filled with beautiful plants and trees, lush garden. Uh, Usually there was precious and valuable gemstones just lying all over the place. And usually heaven was sort of viewed as this place being surrounded by water. So much water, there was water everywhere. In fact, the whole place is surrounded by four rivers of water. Those are the descriptions. Four rivers of water surround the, the, the land of the gods up in the heavens. That's often what is described in some of these other texts. If you want to read some of those, I've got some links in the show notes. You can go do that, some of the books. But that's exactly what we have here in Genesis 2, 10 through 14. A description of a land filled with beautiful plants and trees, precious and valuable gemstones, and surrounded on all sides with four rivers of water. So this isn't necessarily a text to tell us where in the world the Garden of Eden was located. This is a temple text. Moses is describing the temple of Yahweh. Um, More importantly, though, when Moses describes God's temple, note that Moses is not describing a building which is supposed to mirror the heavenly abode of God. Instead, Moses describes what most people thought of as heaven itself. When God builds his temple on earth, it's not a building he constructs, but a little piece of heaven on earth. So, just as God builds a statue for himself, so so that's why he doesn't want us or need us to make statues for him, so also God has built a temple for himself, which is why he doesn't want us or need us to construct temples or buildings for us to worship, in which we're to worship him. Uh, You might say, yeah, but later they did build the tabernacle and the temple. That's true. But remember when King Solomon builds a temple for God, Solomon admits that God does not dwell in temples built by human hands. That's 1 Kings 8.27. And later revelation in Scripture confirms that the entire earth is God's temple and that you and I are the dwelling place of God on earth. So God doesn't need or want buildings in which to dwell or to be worshipped. Now, I admit buildings can be helpful for certain activities and gatherings and forms of teaching, things like that. But From the very beginning, buildings and temples were not necessary or required by God to worship Him. Uh, There's a whole bunch of teaching on that, especially in in light of church buildings and all that stuff today, but uh, we're not going to get sidetracked onto that today. I've written about that a lot on my blog and in some of my books in the past. So, here in Genesis 2, then, we have a temple. The Garden of Eden is the temple of God. That's this description of all the plants and gemstones and, and rivers in, in these uh, in verses 10 through 14. Uh, and it would have been clearly recognized to the people back then, oh, Moses is describing the temple of God, the temple that God has built for himself. And it's not a building. God's, God's temple is not a building. It's the Garden of Eden. All right, so we have God. We've got the statue of God, uh, the land of God, the temple of God. What about the priesthood, the people who do the work of God inside the temple? Well, I think this one should be pretty obvious. In verses 8 and verse 15 of chapter 2, we read that Yahweh took the man he had formed 
and put him in the Garden of Eden. Now, again, when we think of man as the statue of God, that makes sense too, because the statue of God goes in the temple of God. But again, when we realize that the statue of God in in these other religions couldn't move, couldn't breathe, couldn't talk, couldn't eat, uh, and so the priesthood were the ones who did these things for that statue, you know, it was the priest who would do the teaching and listening to the petitions of the people who came. It would be the priest who offered the sacrifices and who who accepted the offerings of the people and who ate the food and, and all these sorts of things, led the people in prayers, all those sorts of things. Well, uh, the st- and the reason they did that is because the statue itself couldn't. Even though they believed the statue was a living, you know, quote-unquote, breathing representation of God, they still needed the priesthood to do all those things. So, in God's temple, well, his statue actually does live and move and breathe and talk and hear and all those sorts of things. And so, uh, in the temple of God, God's statue, the human being, is also the priesthood of God. It serves You and I serve two purposes. Uh, we have two roles. Yes, we're the living, breathing statue of Yahweh. That's what we saw in Genesis 2-7. But we also are the priesthood of God within the temple of God. Uh, and, and because we can actually talk, move, hear, work, the statue of God, which God built for himself in Genesis 2-7, serves nicely as the priest of God uh, here in Genesis 2, verses 8 and 15. And uh, notice at the end of verse 15 that God assigns priestly work to the man to do in the temple. God tells him to tend and keep the garden. And we're going to close off with this. uh, And I want to show you there's four activities, sort of, that are implied or mentioned in verse 15 that the man was supposed to do in the garden. And since you and I continue on as the priesthood of God, that you you and I also are supposed to be doing today. So, first of all, Despite what many believe, the human task of working on this earth is not part of the curse of sin. Lots of people say, well, because Adam and Eve sinned, I got to go have a job. Well, that's not true. Humans are given the responsibility to work. They have a job before sin ever came upon the scene. What happens is, after they sin, God tells them that because of sin, their work will get harder, more painful. Sweat of your brow, you'll bring forth crops. Okay? But they're, they're still supposed to tend and keep the garden before sin. They're still, still supposed to work before sin. Work existed before the fall into sin. And I think because of that, you and I can't expect that when we received our glorified bodies in the eternal kingdom, there will still be work and tasks and responsibilities for you and I to do there. We will have jobs in eternity. Don't get too worried about that. They will be jobs that you and I love to do. They will be things that you will find fulfilling, satisfying, the thing that you were always made to do. If you have a longing in your heart in this life to do something, but you can't because you know, you're stuck in a dead-end job or something, look, in eternity, you will be able to do those things. I believe that the longings in your heart for things you have to do, the things you wish you could learn, the things you could accomplish, I believe those are godly and divine longings, and many of those things you will be able to do in eternity. 
That's the first thing about work. There was work before the fall. There will be work once we receive our glorified bodies in eternal kingdom as well. The second thing to notice about work is that work is worship. Uh, Working upon this earth is one of our primary responsibilities God has given to us as his priesthood. Remember, the priests were to lead people in worship in the temple, and how does God instruct the humans to worship him in the Garden of Eden? Well, by working. So, work is worship. Work is holy and sacred. Yes, again, there are, there are difficulties and frustrations in work, but that's because of sin. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we look at Genesis 3, 17 through 19, and these curses that God announces there. But, um, so we'll talk more about that. But for now, just, just notice that uh, work is worship. Uh, and notice that's sort of what's implied in this tend and keep, this, this phrase in Genesis 2.15, that man is to tend and keep the garden. These are priestly terms. They imply the priestly activities of instructing, teaching others, you know, the things that priests do, offering sacrifices, guarding and protecting the sacred space from anything that might, you know, compromise or corrupt it, serving as uh, mediators between God and the worshipers that come. Uh, and in one way or another, I don't know, maybe I'll try to point it out as we go, but Adam does all of these things in Genesis chapter 2. He teaches, he offers, he guards, he protects, he serves as a mediator, okay, all these sorts of things. He, he does many of them, uh, and then he fails at many of them in Genesis chapter 3. So he does them in Genesis 2 and then fails at them in Genesis chapter 3. And because of his failure... Uh, now, we don't lose the responsibilities of performing the priestly work. Uh, we, we keep those responsibilities. They just become more difficult. You and I still share the priestly responsibilities today. Um, God raised up Israel to be a kingdom of priests. And then Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.9 that we are a holy priesthood. So we're still supposed to tend and keep, do all of the priestly activities. It's just a little more difficult today, but we still have the same responsibilities. And like Adam, sometimes we're successful, sometimes we fail. But it uh, doesn't mean that our failure, our failure doesn't mean that we don't have to do them anymore, that they're not part of the way we live life. That's the second thing. Uh, third, um, notice that from Genesis 2.15, and I sort of hinted at this a little bit m- earlier, Humans are to protect the garden from anything that might compromise or corrupt it. Those words, tend and keep, in the Hebrew, imply that man is to protect the garden and everything that's in it. Uh, They they do have that priestly connotation, but they also have sort of an undercurrent of aggression or, or protection from outside sinister forces. And I don't mean violent aggression, but it, there's, to protect does require a form of aggression. To stand up, be strong, and uh, stand up against evil and what is wrong and, and anything that might corrupt or pollute or ruin what God has made. And you might say, well, God is telling Adam to protect the garden from corruption? What could possibly, what, what does he need to protect the garden from? Well, we saw several allusions to various sinister forces, the chaos in Genesis 1-2, the great sea monsters of Genesis 1-21, and all of these existed as part of creation, sort of this, this 
God, God set up creation in opposition somewhat to these forces of chaos. The alert reader back then would have wondered in the back of their minds, are these things ever going to rebel against God? Will they ever raise their ugly heads once again in a revolution to try to take some of their power away from God or something like that? And so they would have been asking that question. And now that God says to Adam, hey, Adam, I want you to tend and keep, I want you to protect this garden. They would have understand that one of Adam's responsibilities is to guard or defend the garden from anything that might want to destroy or distort what God has made. And again, that is more of our responsibilities today. We must understand what God has set up, why God has made it, and then protect and defend what God has made from anything that might want to corrupt it or compromise it. That's the third thing. Finally then, uh, the work which God assigns to humans as his priests in his temple is the work of redemption. Redemption is a huge theme in pretty much everything I write and teach. And we see it pop up here when God tells Adam to tend and keep the garden as well. We see it especially in light of or in connection to God's instruction to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28. We'll see this again in the future, but back in Genesis 1.28, God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply upon the face of the earth. And if you remember, what we learned back then is that as they carried, as they multiplied, as they were fruitful and multiplied upon the face of the earth, they carried and spread the image of God with them over the entire earth. And that's what we see here as well in Genesis 2. As Adam and later Eve spread over the face of the earth, the garden, as they tend and keep the garden, it also will spread over the face of the earth. Now, if you're confused by that, you just, again, sort of imagine in your mind the scene. In Genesis 2, verse 4 and 5, we saw that the land, the earth, was barren. It had no plants because there was no man to till it. And then in verses 8 and following, we saw that God planted a garden in the east. The garden of Eden did not cover the entire earth. It was just one small little portion surrounded by rivers. Uh, so what was the rest of the earth like? Well... It appears it was still like it was described in Genesis 2, 4 through 6. This barren landscape that had no plants because there was no man to till the ground. So as we, we can imagine that as humans follow the instruction of God in Genesis 1.28 to be fruitful and multiply and cover the earth, what they will what will they do? Well, they will till the ground. They will bring forth plants. They will bring seeds from the Garden of Eden and plant them around the earth, and in this way, they will expand the borders of the garden eventually over the whole earth. As humans expand on the earth, the earth will be transformed from a barren landscape into a lush and beautiful garden. And I believe that is a beautiful, wonderful picture of redemption. The humans were going to redeem the land. They were going to take this dry and barren landscape and redeem it or buy it back, transform it, turn it into the Garden of Eden. They were going to take the little bit that God has done in the Garden of Eden and spread it over the whole earth. 
The seeds of redemption are sown by God himself when he planted the garden. But then the spread of redemption occurs as man takes what God has done and spreads it over the whole earth. And you know, that's exactly what happens with you and I. The kingdom of God was inaugurated. The seeds of redemption were planted through the death, well, actually, through the life and ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that is then why he tells us to take what we have learned and seen in him and teach others also. Matthew 28, 19, and 20 is the Great Commission. We're to go into all the world, teaching and baptizing men in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, what is this? He's saying, take what you've seen me do and you've heard me teach, this work of redemption I've accomplished, and then spread it over the whole earth. That's also what you and I are supposed to do today as we engage others in the work of redemption. So that's what we've seen in Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 15 today. From an ancient perspective, in order to worship God, well, he needs land, he needs a statue of himself, he needs a temple, a priesthood, and some commands or teachings for his worshipers to follow. And we've seen the first four of these already in Genesis chapter 2. The world is the land of God. The Garden of Eden is the temple of God. And humanity serves as both the statue of God and the priesthood of God. So what are we missing? Well, just that last element, the commandment, the teaching, the Torah of God. Uh, And and, and we'll look at, you might have noticed, I skipped it back in verse 9, these two trees that were mentioned, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, those are also mentioned in verses 16 and 17, and that's the final element that we will look at next time, the teachings, the law, the commandment of God. And it is also there where we will begin to see some important insights from Genesis 2 about society, religion, human culture, and other, other similar things. So you really need to join me for that study. You'll likely learn something new about the tree of knowledge of good and evil and how we still eat from it today, believe it or not. Hey, between now and then, though, uh, make sure you go pre-order a copy of my new book, The Atonement of God. I do talk in there. I write in there some of what we're going to be learning about from Genesis 3 and 4. Uh, so if you want to get a sort of a head start, we're gonna we're still several months away from getting into 3 and 4, a couple months anyway, and so you can get a head start by reading that book. It should be out March 21st. Just go to Amazon and search for The Atonement of God by Jeremy Myers. I'll include a link to it in the show notes. Just go to redeeminggod.com, Genesis 2, 8 through 15, Click on the link that says The Atonement for God, and it'll take you right over there. You can get a paperback or the ebook version. Uh, look, I believe this is my best book yet. I am so thrilled and excited about what I've learned and what I can share with you through this book. So uh, I'm super excited to know what you think about it as well. So go get your copy pre-order today. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week when we look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17.